Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and coming up on today's show, I speak with Carrie Shields, the award-winning winemaker at Cote Bonneville in Washington's Yakima Valley. Carrie's wines have always had an amazing sense of place, and that's a concept I want to unpack a bit. We talk a lot about that sense of place, or terroir, in the wine world, but the dirty little secret is that a lot of vineyards don't really display it. Oh, they can make really good wine, but not necessarily wine that is specific to that plot of land. You need the right combination of hillsides, soil types, weather patterns, and a bunch of other factors, but you also need the right kind of winemaker. When I first got into wine, the dominant trend was to focus on fairly invasive winemaking techniques, from acidification to reverse osmosis to heavy oak usage. The wines that were made had a certain uniform appeal, but all of those practices killed whatever sense of place was present in the grapes. Those wines often achieved critical acclaim, not to mention extraordinary prices, but to me they often missed the point, if not the points. Fortunately, the pendulum has started to swing back in the opposite direction. Winemakers around the globe are realizing that if they allow their fruit to speak for itself, it can have something profound and delightful to say, something that could not be heard underneath the noise of all that manipulation. And we as wine drinkers are all the better for it. Joining me today on Disgorged is Carrie Shields, the winemaker at Cote Bonneville in Washington State. Carrie, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so let's start with uh, maybe the uh, one of the most interesting things about your winery, which is um, its relative uh, history uh, and the the amount of time that uh, the vineyard, uh, the Dubrol vineyard, that's sort of the centerpiece of the vi- of the winery, has been planted. Uh, maybe if you can talk a little bit about the the history of uh, of both the winery and the vineyard, uh, and uh, kind of how your family uh, came to be involved with it. Sure, um, we're actually pretty excited about looking. Uh, how far we've come because next year is the 25th anniversary of planting of the vineyard, which in Washington state, those are uh, old vines. The Mm -hmm. industry is really so young that to have the vineyard planted in 92 was um, not the beginning early pioneers, but it was definitely at the beginnings of the exponential growth of the industry. And um, through that, we've seen a lot of the development of the Washington wine industry, including um, in the late, in the early 90s, up to about the mid-late 90s, people, uh, the, the common concept in the industry was to buy fruit from all over the state and blend it together. And there wasn't really a search for a sense of place and any distinctive, unique sites. And um, and that really ch- started to change in the mid-90s. And we were one of the first vineyards with the Rural Vineyard to get recognized as a special site and get vineyard designated and people were were realizing that this was fruit that was worth uh, standing alone. And so in 2001, we decided to, um, we decided to start the winery to really showcase the fact that we had a spectacular site with that's very unique and very distinctive. And so Cote Bonneville was born and we still sell 75% of our fruit to a lot of the top wineries in Washington, but we keep, enough to make about 2,500, 3,000 cases ourselves. Very cool. What was the, what was the impetus for, for planting the vineyard? Um, you know, how did, uh, how did that, uh, you know, it's in the early nineties, even it's, it still strikes me as a little bit of a, of a bold gamble to plant, uh, vineyards and especially to plant them in a part of the Yakima Valley that, you know, now I think we, one of the things we love about 
about Dubrow Vineyard is, you know, it's relatively cool. It definitely doesn't produce the sort of incredibly ripe, uh, high sugar uh, grapes that other parts of Washington do produce from time to time. Um, but, you know, I can imagine in 92, that's a, you know, that's a kind of risky decision. Well, my family's always done things a little differently than everybody else. <laughs> um, um, I can attest to that being true. The, uh, well, my family had been, my parents got into wine in the seventies. They were wine drinkers. They were living in California at the beginning of the industry. And so when they moved up to Washington in the Yakima Valley, there were a lot of, I mean, because it is the, the center of the industry and always has been, uh, where wine grapes come from. Uh, there were a lot of people that St. Michelle had brought up from UC Davis who were professional winemakers like Wade Wolf, Kay Simon, um, and Stan Clark. There were a lot of those early people in the industry, Sarah Spade, who was the extension enologist at WSU. And those were people that my family had been associated with more socially. They were professional friends from the beginning. So we knew what was going on in the industry and about some of the developments that were happening. Uh, they actually started farming. They One of the reasons they came to Sunnyside is they wanted to be in a more rural setting. And they've been farming around at the property by the winery since the late 70s. They planted Concords actually in 1982. And we're looking, the Concords had been in for about a decade and they were looking to expand the farm. And so decided to stick with grapes. And the, the site that they found, they were interested in wine grapes. Um, we worked with Wade Wolf to lay out the site and uh, we planted it based on some of the research that had been done by Walt Clore in at WSU on what varietals would do well. Wade Wolf was instrumental in laying the vineyard out to the different topographies and different soil types of the site. So we really took the approach from the beginning that we wanted to do things not the same as everybody else, but we wanted to do them correctly at a high quality point. So what, uh, what, how many different varietals do you guys have planted, uh, at this point? We have six, uh, the, we have Cab Merlot, Cab Franc, Syrah, Riesling, and Chardonnay. And actually the Riesling was already on the property. Mm. The Rosa Canal went in, in the 1950s and obviously in the Yakima Valley and most of Eastern Washington, uh, we get so little rainfall that, uh, everything has to be irrigated, which is a huge advantage for consistency, but with um, you can't plant where there's no irrigation. So the canal went in in the 50s and was planted to an apple orchard. Mm -hmm. So rocky on our site that it, the orchard never did well. So the owner of the orchard had uh, started converting it to grapes in the early 80s and had planted Riesling. And so those vines are still on the property, and I make the Spatelaza-style Riesling out of them. That is a wonderful example of what Washington Riesling uh, can be. Yeah, it's one of the things, you know, I think uh, that's amazing to me and, and super cool about Washington is that you can viably grow, uh, you know, Riesling and Cabernet Sauvignon in essentially the same vineyard, which is, I mean, doesn't sound like a lot to some people, but when you know a little bit about wine and where those grapes tend to grow is kind of crazy. Oh, it's definitely crazy. I think in many ways, that's what makes Washington and especially the Yakima Valley such a dynamic, interesting, fascinating region. And having worked all over the world, I don't, I don't think there's any place 
that you can do this nearly as successfully as you can in Yakima. And it's, it's just so much fun as a winemaker to be able to not just make one thing. I mean, I get to make a Burgundian style Chardonnay and a German style Riesling, a Rhone style Syrah and Bordeaux blends. Those are, you'd have to be in different countries to produce those in Europe in mm-hmm. traditional places. And so it's, it really is a unique thing about Washington. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of unique, and you mentioned sort of the rocky soil, what are some of the unique characteristics of the Dubrul Vineyard, uh, maybe as far as soil composition and um, anything else that uh, kind of jumps out at you? Well, all of eastern Washington has uh, a lot of basalt in the underlying subsoil. Our vineyard is a basalt upthrust. That so we have a lot of a lot of volcanic soil, very rock, very close to the surface. And then the ancient Columbia River used to flow right over our property. So we have this combination of different basalt um, from the basalt flows that came out of the Oregon-Idaho-Washington border that flowed towards the west, interfingering and intermixing with basalt coming out of the ancient Cascades. And then on top of that, we have river rock from the Canadian Rockies that was tumbled and brought by the ancient Columbia river and the river would flow and dry up and flow and dry up. So there's a white mineral crust on all of the rocks there, which is very unique. And it's, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of places you find river rock on the top of the hillsides. Yeah. And just that variation of volcanic and, and heterogeneity of rocks is, is really a unique characteristic, especially when combined with the hillside. So is there is there also Missoula flood influence, or, or are you outside of that band? We are abs- actually above the influence of the Missoula floods. Okay. So what's the elevation at, at Debrule? I probably should know this, but I don't. <laughs> it starts at about 1,000 feet Okay. where the carriage house planting is, and it goes up to about 1,350. Okay. And while that might not sound incredibly high, the basalt – well, the, the basalt group that flowed out of – from the basalt flows is so thick that it's about 14,000 feet deep of basalt. And it's, I mean, volcanic rock is really heavy and it's dense. And so it's so thick and heavy, it actually dented the crust of the earth. Yeah. So we're higher, we're higher than it would appear to be. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, you know, when it comes to um, sort of farming grapes on that kind of soil, um, you know, uh, the river rock overlaying, uh, you know, I guess cracked basalt. Um, obviously, you're getting really, really um, the roots digging down really deep. There's, there's not much. Um, I would imagine much water retention. There's not really anything to hold it in there. Um, and even with irrigation, that's still probably a little bit of a challenge. Um, what does that, what does that mean from the, from the growing and, and the winemaking perspective? You know, what does working with that soil structure um, do, or how does it, how do you have to handle it? Well, one of the reasons that hillsides are traditionally wonderful places to grow grapes is that there is less soil and grapevines are like people when they have to struggle a little more they are they have more interesting stories and they have more unique things to say so it's really a huge advantage for us because um especially with our dry winters we don't have we have a lot of control over the vigor of the vines so by not irrigating as much by making the vines struggle more. We get really small berries, we get small clusters, we get very intense fruit. And where you have more soil, because to say we have soil in some parts of the vineyard is very generous. (laughs) Um, Depends on how windy it was the day before. Exactly. Uh, So 
when you have a lot of soil, when the when the soils are very rich, they're good for they're good for vegetables, but they're not necessarily great for grapes. Um, so historically, you would plant you'd plant more food crops and vegetables and grains down on the valley floors where you had more soil and it wasn't such a problem with um, any winter frost issues. And then up on the hillsides where you didn't have any any soil where your other crops wouldn't grow very well, that's where people planted wine grapes. And that's similar similar to where to what we're doing, but by being up on the hillside in the Yakima Valley in the lower elevations, there's more influence of the Missoula floods, there's more frost frost um, potential down in the bottom of the, on the valley floor. And so we plant other things like mint and squash and carrots and, and all the myriad of other things that we grow in the valley. But up higher on the hillsides, you actually have better quality fruit. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at this, there's a, it's rare that you find a great, great wine from a valley floor. Um, I'm sure that there are probably a few, uh, exceptions to that, but, uh, but not very many. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the different wines you make, uh, starting maybe with the white wines. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, with the Riesling, you're you're obviously influenced by by Germany and and maybe by, perhaps more specifically by um, Rieslings from the from the Mosul. Although you could certainly tell me I'm wrong. And with and with Chardonnay, um, you know, you you mentioned sort of Burgundian style. Talk maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the the vinification and and what you do with those, uh, each of those wines um, as you bring them into the winery. Well, we do everything in the vineyard is done by hand, so they're all hand-picked, whole cluster um, when they come into the winery. And then we go with those with those two white wines, we go directly into the press and whole cluster press them. The um, Riesling has a cool fermentation, which really preserves the aromatics, and um, then it's... We, we actually stopped the fermentation sooner than a lot of people would in Washington State because we found through extensive research, because somebody has to do the research <laughs> of competitive analysis in wine, um, but we found that if you pick a little earlier and leave more acidity, stop the fermentation a little sooner, if you have more acid and more sugar, you get a lot more flavor, and that just makes our, our Riesling, the aromatics explode out of the glass. It's really versatile, and I think it's a fun wine. Plus, with the lower alcohol content, you can drink a lot more of it, and who doesn't like that? Certainly not anyone who's selling the wine. <laughs> so, the um, well, even the people who are drinking it. Yes, that too. Um, so then the Chardonnay, well, and the rosé is actually similar to, because we make a Cabernet Franc rosé that's completely dry, more uh, traditional French-style rosé. It also goes directly into the press. There's a, a limited amount of skin contact, and then everything gets um, gets directly to the press. It's not a Sanier leftover style of rosé. We grow the grapes specifically for our rosé, make all of our decisions um, within the viticulture, picking, pressing, goes to, uh, directly for that wine, and the skins don't get used for anything else. I consider those the white wines because they're fermented in, um, they're much more similar. They're done in, in tanks. Chardonnay is in a category all on its own. Um, it's actually fermented in the barrel and then it spends 17 months on the lees. So there's a full malolactic fermentation after the, you get the yeast and then you have all the bacteria for all that creamy tech complexity and, and flavors and, and stability. And then you get um, 
real rich texture and mouthfeel after 17 months on the lees with the Chardonnay. So it is, and it's bottled unfined and unfiltered. So that's a very age-worthy classic Montrachet style Chardonnay. And are, is is there any any oak at all in that process, or is it all stainless? Oh no, that's all all French barrels. Okay. And uh, about a third of it is new. Okay. Do you uh, do you like geek out on uh, specific cooperages and and forests, or do you just kind of is that is that a little too uh, too technical, or not too technical, but too uh, like too too much minutia? Oh. It's all minutia. I mean, at the begin, at the at the end of the day, anybody can make wine. I mean, if you leave grapes on your countertop, it, they'll ferment themselves. Winemaking is not rocket science. We've been doing it for like eight thousand years at least. It's aside from maybe picking decision, everything else in winemaking is details, and so I think that's the hallmark of a good winemaker is they geek out over all that stuff. So. We actually use, for our Chardonnay, we use um, a single cooper. Most of our well, our red wines, we use a variety of coopers because they all bring different nuances and different elements. But the Chardonnay, uh, because our quantities are so limited, I mean, I buy four new barrels of Chardonnay a year, um, and we only make about 200 cases total. Mm-hmm. The We use one cooper, but they're extra, they're, they stay in the... The staves are seasoned for three years instead of two. Okay. And so they're a very, it's a really nice Chardonnay barrel that we find supports our fruit. Um, we get them from Boot. So we find it really supports our fruit but and adds to it with not without overwhelming the fruit because, I mean, anybody can buy barrels, even the expensive ones. Not everybody can have to grow fruit. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the reds go, um, I mean, I think, you know, maybe – I guess Syrah is probably a somewhat different animal than than the Bordeaux varietals. So maybe let's start with Syrah. What are you what are you doing with Syrah when you when you bring it in uh, into the vineyard? And well, actually, you know what? Sorry. Also, when where are you picking that? Because I think that's a, a really important question with Washington Syrah. Because I think you can re- people really go a lot of different directions as far as when they choose to pick Syrah, um, and then obviously what you do with with it once you get it in the vineyard. Well, I think both the picking is is kind of variable in Washington. Some people are looking more for the really ripe styles, and this is Bordeaux varietals and Syrah. Some people are looking for more really ripe styles, and others are looking more for elegance and finesse and very and classic profiles with more acidity. And um, so we pick we pick when things are ripe, but we're not looking for overripe fruit. So I definitely use numbers as a guide. I mean, being a retired engineer. Um, I do like, I do like my numbers, but, um, everything at the end of the day boils down to flavor. So when we get, when we start getting those flavor characteristics that you have ripe fruit, but before anything gets jammy, um, we wait for, for physiological maturity with, with tannins and acidity. But, um, basically once we start getting, once we start getting the flavors we're looking for, and with Syrah, that's, it's really important to be proactive because if you wait too long, uh, you'll lose turgor in the berries and they start to dehydrate and shrivel. And so you have to be, 
you have to be on top of it because if you miss that window, then you get into those raisiny flavors pretty quickly. Yeah, that's that's been a thing I've heard from a number of uh, growers and winemakers uh, is that you know Syrah tends to be you have like a, a narrower window to pick as you start approaching that real kind of ripeness point, and then um, you know other varietals might be you might be able to have a little more leeway as far as letting them hang for a little longer, and, and Syrah really has to kind of come off in that window, or else it can kind of yeah, I can get to that really kind of raisiny um, like yeah, just like stewed fruit quality pretty quick. Well, and that's one of the advantages that we have is that the winery is five miles from the vineyard. So when, when things start getting close, if I'm getting nervous, um, if we're, it's, um, it's really easy to run out to the vineyard. And even, I mean, during harvest, I have one vineyard and I'm still there. If not every day, at least three times, three, four times a week. And most winemakers, especially the ones who buy fruit from all over the state don't get to be in one block quite as frequently and really micromanage the site and the process. But that's the advantage of being small and a state. Yeah. And, and so when, when you then, when the Syrah comes in, are you, what are you doing as far as like destemming? Are you doing whole cluster? Like how, how do you kind of approach that? And maybe along with that sort of what's the, you know, you, you talked about Montrachet with the, um, with the Chardonnay, is there a, is there a wine or a, a part of, um, you know, a Syrah producer that you look at as like, this is what you're, you know, you're sort of aiming at, even if you're obviously trying to make, you know, Cote Bonneville Syrah. Well, we've always been, uh, very true to our own site, but it often gets compared to Cote Roti. Mm-hmm. And we not just because of the first word, let's be clear. <laughs> not just because of the first word. Exactly. Definitely is both. The, um, we don't do a lot of skins or stems, excuse me. The, um, there are some people who want, who think that that adds a lot of complexity and they like the structure that it brings. I think we have really, really beautiful fruit. It's so pretty. And, um, I don't like the super funky meaty Syrahs. And so ours is very fruit forward and at the same time, it's restrained, it's elegant, and it's uh, it's one of the more popular wines that we make in the tasting room, actually. People walk into the tasting room and they pretty reliably walk out with a bottle of Syrah. So, yeah. And I think that's very interesting because I think there's a, there's a real um, – it's not a – to me, it's not a right or wrong. It's just there's a, there's a definite um, – divergence and sort of what people are looking to get out of their Syrah. Um, I'll, I'll admit a certain, um, a- appreciation for and fascination with a little bit of that sort of like meaty savory element that you can get in Syrah, especially from a little more stem inclusion and, and whole cluster ferments. Um, but I think it, it, again, it, it walks a, you know, walks a fine line and, and can get to a point where, um, you know, sort of the, you, you lose some of the, the sort of, yeah, the prettiness of Syrah underneath this layer of, you know, sort of like, you know, blood and leather and sort of very, I don't know, like medieval smells. <laughs> yeah. And we have things like boysenberries and violets and just a very different set of descriptors that describe our Syrah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, I think what's great is when those, when that element, those flavors and those aromatics can be paired with something that's not, you know, so overly ripe. I think, you know, one of the, one of the knocks that I, that I've, you know, one of the things I've heard people say about Washington Syrah and Syrah in general in the new world is that, you know, it, it, it kind of gets into that, like, you know, blackberry pie quality really quick, which is, you know, sort of 
uh, hedonistic and, and a thing that I'll admit a certain fondness for from time to time, but but isn't really isn't as interesting as a wine that has that sort of um, complexity and and is not necessarily so um, so just kind of fat, I guess is probably how those Syrahs end up uh, in on the palate. Definitely. I think with a lot of the new world trends, people have been going more towards really hedonistic styles. And, and my feeling on that is there are wines that taste good and there are wines that drink well. And to me, the difference is if I'm in a blind tasting, if I'm just going to have if I'm going to have a glass, it tastes good. But something that drinks well is a wine that's more complex, more interesting. And to me, those are the wines that you finish the bottle and you're like, it's done. Where'd it go? I need more. <laughs> yeah. And we make wines that that aren't so flashy and showy necessarily upon the initial taste, but they drink really well. Yeah. Um, I would agree. And, and I think a part of that too is is not only do they do – they, um, drink well, but they age well. And that's the other downside to that sort of like taste good, uh, style is like, yeah, as on initial release, they're probably pretty, um, easy to enjoy, but they tend to not have much of a, of a life to them. You know, they're pretty, they're pretty, um, short lived. And, you know, I've had a chance to try a few of your wines that go back, you know, a decade or so, if not more. And, and there's definitely a difference in a wine that's really designed and, and made to be, age-worthy. Mm-hmm. Yes. it's And you make the wines differently, and there are definitely different things you do in the cellar. And um, most people don't make... I mean, you need really great grapes, and then you have to set out with the intention to age your wines. And it really helps if you have the kind of customers that appreciate aged wines. And so it's, it is a little bit of a, a rarity... Uh, in today's wine market to find people who really do set out to make age-worthy wines. But we found, well, after Thanksgiving, there were, I heard from quite a few of our customers who were very excited to pull out old bottles from their, from their cellars. And it's so much fun to see people drinking wines that are 10, 15 years old and just getting really, really excited about them. And to me, that's, that's really rewarding because that's what fine wines are about. Yeah. Is they have a sense of place. They're age worthy. They are spectacular upon release, but they get better. And and that that to me says we're doing we're doing something right. Awesome. So how has your uh, has your approach? I guess I should say not how has has your approach to winemaking uh, changed in the time that you've been uh, running uh, Cote Bonneville? Yeah, um, I think the difference of. The difference for me and what's really changed my perspective on winemaking um, at Cote Bonneville versus at the wineries I worked at down in California are is the other advantage of being small is that I get to be in the vineyard, I get to make the wines, and then I get to deal directly with the people who are enjoying them. And I get so much feedback from what people like, what people don't like, and some of the things that we're trending towards are actually even though we've never made very hedonistic high alcohol, very ripe styles, we've actually moved even more towards a little lower alcohols. Um, we find a lot of our customers would like to enjoy wine without 
overindulging or overserving themselves. And, and, uh, so we've, we've moved more towards lower alcohols. We've moved away from, uh, we used to do hundred percent new French Oak in our Cote Bonneville blend. And we've moved away from that. It's about, I mean, it's still pretty significant at like 75, but just really looking more and more for that sense of place, the very traditional styles, the age worthiness and, um, and then we introduced our train station for, which is a, a Cabernet that we started making in 2013, which is made in a different style that is more enjoyable now because you don't, you don't want that really special bottle of wine all the time necessarily. And so we've, we've really broadened since I've come home, we've really broadened the scope of wines. We make the range and the occasions that one would would want to enjoy a bottle of Cote Bonneville on. And it's, but to me, it's really, really important to pay attention to what, to listen to what our customers are saying and help that inform even our viticulture, which is really cool. That opportunity is, is pretty unique, I think. Yeah. Well, it's a part of, you know, as you said, the advantage of controlling, um, you know, being in a state winery that you have you know, both the vineyard and obviously the winemaking um, sort of process uh, totally within your control. Um, let's talk about something that's definitely not within your control, which is, um, sort of the broader perspective and broader, um, image of Washington wine. Um, you know, I think it's really, um, interesting to me, you know, uh, being here in Seattle, um, and, and interacting a lot with Washington wine, you know, here in the state in here in the Seattle area, uh, Washington wine is, you know, very, very, uh, important, very popular, um, you know, a, a huge seller. And then you get outside of the Northwest and, um, you know, Washington wine is, I would say, I'll be generous and call it something of an afterthought, if not something that people are completely unaware of. Um, so, you know, I know you, um, you know, certainly appreciate the the local market, but you do, you know, sell some of your wine outside of the state. What is, what is your, what is your, what are some of the challenges you face and, and how do you talk about, um, the, your wines to a pe- to people who don't know anything about the Yakima Valley or Sunnyside or, or any of that? Well, it definitely is a challenge the farther away you get from Washington on the, I mean, again, going back to the fact this industry is very, very young. Um, for a long time, nobody, nobody exported their wine out of Washington. And it's, it's very difficult to have, a world-class vineyard in Sunnyside that people in New York have heard of when they're still asking the question, what side of the Potomac do your grapes come from? (laughs) And it's really exciting to see that that's, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes more than one winery going, going out and working in different parts of the country. So it just takes time to get that critical mass, but it's exciting to see more and more wineries on wine lists in New York and DC and Florida and Texas and Chicago. And so the, it is changing. I remember years ago in Florida and I, I was at a tasting and I heard, and somebody walked in in the middle of Florida and said, there's Washington wine here. Where is it? I can't wait. I'm so excited. And I was I couldn't decide if I was more excited or shocked. And, <laughs> um, that's that is becoming more and more common, and it's not a, it's not as shocking. It still is exciting, but it's it's not as surprising. And so that it just takes time and effort and energy. 
But what we do is we go back to, I mean, I explain Washington. I tell people why the Yakima Valley and why Washington is such a wonderful region. We have, we have more hundred or more 90 point wines than any other region in the world. And just because you haven't tasted all of them for as many centuries as from different other regions, uh, there's so much potential here. We've got 300 days of sunshine. We've got the control, the low, the low humidity and the, the low rainfall, which gives you, I mean, we, we can grow our grapes with minimal inputs because we have low disease pressure, everything gets ripe. Our diurnal temperature shift with the warm days and the cool nights is unparalleled anywhere in the world. Only I've only ever heard people even think about talking about diurnal temperature shifts this way in Argentina. Um, the latitude is important because we have very long days. We've got just this wonderful melding of factors with south-facing hillsides, variation and variability. Um, you know, all of these things add up to create, there's not one silver bullet, but it's, it's just all of the conditions here are so perfect for growing wine grapes. And once you educate people about the area and about what makes the Yakima Valley so special, um, they often, they want to come visit because it's hard to believe a place that all of these things come together like this. It's, I mean, the geology, the weather, the climate, the latitude, and the, the opportunity we have are unparalleled anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I think another, another important part of it is that, um, you have a lot more, um, quality and skill, um, as far as viticulture and, and winemaking. Um, and that's, a, that's a thing that continues to, um, increase, you know, pretty much year by year as, as the, you know, the, the style, the style, I think shifts slowly, but, but perceptibly away from that sort of really, really ripe high alcohol style of wine. Not that there aren't still plenty of people making that wine, but, but there's a, I think a, a distinct current, um, of people making, you know, wines um, like yours that are, you know, designed to be, um, more, uh, more about, um, ripeness, but not over ripeness and balance and structure and all those things. Um, and that's, that's, you know, you need the, the, the great, the great piece of land and even the ability to grow great grapes is obviously a huge part of it. Um, but you need, the skill on the winemaking side to sometimes just get the hell out of the way of the grapes and sometimes to understand <laughs> how to work with them. Um, and getting the hell out of the way of the grapes is sometimes a thing I, it's like there are times when I try people's wines and I just, but that's the thing I want to say to them. Um, but usually I'm a little more diplomatic than that. Well, let's be honest. It's a young industry and it is, and even in industries that have been established, it's significantly easier to make wines that are very ripe and, don't and not balanced. I mean, it's balance and finesse in anything is hard. Yeah. Elegance is hard and it takes skill and it takes attention to detail and it takes focus. And that's why, that's why when you get it right, it's, it's special. And if you, but like you said, you have to have, you have to have the viticulture, you have to have the winemaking, you have to have the vision to do it. And getting, getting all of those competencies and ideas and just raw potential is in one spot is, it's not something everybody can do. For sure. For sure. Um, two, uh, two more questions for you. The first is, is there anything else that you wish you had 
uh, either a different varietal or a different style of wine than you're than you're currently making. The, either whether it's something you're actually going to do or not. Do you have like a? Is there something you would want to try? Oh, I have thoughts about trying other things, but it, under a second label. But then I start thinking that you know we really make such a range of. We really have the range. I mean, from the Riesling to the Rosé, which is like a, it's our version of a dry white wine. I mean, it's a nice Sauvignon Blanc stand-in um, in terms of like white wine category type of thing. The richness of the Chardonnay is its own niche. And then we've got all the classic red varietals. I mean, I would love to make... I would love to be able to make Barolo or Barbaresco, but I'm not even going to try because I know those wines don't, those grapes don't grow well in Washington. They're so specific to that one little part of Italy that um, I'd have to move back to Italy if I was going to do that. And that's not exactly feasible. So yeah, that I, would make it a little harder to go check the vineyards in uh, Sunnyside. Exactly. But we actually make a surprising range of wines for our size. And I think that's, um, I think that's really cool. Awesome. So, and then I know I might, you might've already tipped off your answer to this last question, but um, who knows? What have you been drinking lately uh, that is not from your winery uh, that excites you? Um, I have been drinking, speaking of Sauvignon Blanc, I went on a quest for Loire whites um, around harvest for some reason. I wanted, I just was really in the mood for something that was, refreshing and delicious and had great acidity after this particular vintage. So I have been drinking a lot of Sancerre. Yeah. That's not a bad, uh, that is not a bad, uh, soft Blanc to opt for, uh, <laughs> for sure. And, uh, and definitely an interesting, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting place right now because I think you have a lot of, uh, divergence and style and a lot of, uh, sort of, um, questions about, um, what exactly, what makes Sancerre Sancerre and, and kind of should it, you know, in a warmer vintage, should it, should you, should winemakers go to great lengths to preserve, you know, to, to make it as austere as possible? Or do you kind of have to say, well, this vintage is just going to be more, more ripe because that's what, that's what happened. You know, we can't pretend it wasn't warm. Um, but that said, I mean, it's still Sancerre. It's still, you know, a ripe vintage in, in the Loire is still not hot. It's just less cold <laughs> than than typical. Uh, exactly. Very cool. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, look forward to uh, to tasting more of your wines as uh, time passes, and maybe going back and visiting some of those old vintages. And uh, we'll uh, we'll chat again soon. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Carrie Shields of Cope Bonneville for joining me on Disgorged. Her wines are available in stores around the country or online at copebonneville.com. You can find me online at vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V, or on Twitter and Instagram at Zjabal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks for listening to Disgorged, and cheers.